This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 34 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back this week. We've got another fantastic episode for you guys. We've got a great interviewee for you. But before we get into our interview, what's going on, Steve-O? Hey, Tucker. Great to be back on the show. Yeah, so been a busy, busy week. I'll kind of go head into just a, a few things going on, both as a broker and then on the brokerage side. We've been incredibly busy, and we've been fortunate on the buyer side, I mean, my team has put, I think, five, I don't know the exact number, but it feels like five or six offers into escrow just in the last seven days. Most of them were in multiple offer situations, so I'm not officially saying that the market has cooled and that we're getting offers accepted on the buy side because of that. We've had the battle axe out, <laughs> and, we're, and we're winning some of the battles, so that feels good. I did have an interesting experience in the last week. I don't know if you heard about the Intel layoffs, but it actually impacted a transaction of mine. How did that impact it? So I had just seen it on my phone on, gosh, I forget the specific day. It was either Wednesday or Thursday. And we had gone in escrow on one of my listings. The next day they terminated and the email said their daughter works for Intel. They were buying a house here to be closer to her and they're concerned about that and they they don't want to close on this house until the dust settles from that. And Intel did sure enough, I think just yesterday they also released that like 800 jobs were in the next few months going to be lost here in the Portland market. So that definitely has an impact on things. I think Portland's okay. I mean, I think our real estate is really solid. If anything, we might have a little bit, tiny bit bump up in inventory or we may have a few less buyers. But Intel is the largest private employer in Oregon and not a month goes by that we're not doing, you know, multiple Intel transactions. So you hate to see that and you hope that it's just a little blip in the radar and they're back to good soon. Even though I will say, and I, I feel that they will be because this has happened in the past. This isn't the first or last time that they will lay people off. Yeah, I agree. I think that last month though, remember Boeing? <laughs> and now yeah. Intel. I took a class this last month. I had to go get my uh, lead-based paint recertification. Every five years, you have to have your personal certification, and then every year, you have to re-up your companies. And so that was a big confusion point. So if anybody out there has got to deal with that, I can tell you exactly how it works. It's a pain in the butt. But I had to go to this class, and the guy that taught it has a good buddy at Boeing, and uh, he knew about all these layoffs before they were going to happen. I said, well, you should have uh, bought some stock or (laughs) shorted the stock or something, right? But that was a joke. But beyond that, he said that Boeing has a 20-year plan. And the reason being is because they kind of see the writing on the wall with the, you know, the, the minimum wage hikes and basically the cost of labor hikes. And so they're going to try and ultimately, and this is unofficial, it's not official, but it's, it's unofficial information. I think a lot of other companies are going to follow suit, but they're basically going to try and get a lot of the low level and manufacturing type jobs out of the high cost of labor areas. And so that basically means a lot of those jobs are going overseas and they're going to keep design and engineering stateside. So, you know, I don't know exactly which jobs got cut at Intel, but my gut would tell me that they're probably starting to do some of the same things. 
Interesting. Yeah. And, and low cost labor would definitely not be Seattle where people have the, the high cost of living there. So Right. Well, plus they've enacted the $15 an hour minimum wage and the Boeing area, I believe, falls within the geographical region where they have to abide by that. Oh, boy. Wow. So on the brokerage side of things, I'll just wrap up real quickly. You know, we had a meeting this week. We do a monthly meeting. It's called the Broker Leadership Team, the BLT and I, I like BLT just, sandwiches, by the way. I love BLT sandwiches, and, and, and it's the perfect acronym. And this is where just a group of diverse agents from different branches, there's about 20 or so. It's not an official number, but it's just, you know, we take about two or three out of each of the branches, and we don't, we try to make it diverse. Some will be a little bit newer to the business, some will be a little, have been seasoned veterans. Some will be pretty big producers. Others will be, you know, mid-level or lower producers. Just so we get everybody's perspective, we put them in a room once a month, and we have an agenda, and we talk about like, what do you think of this we're doing, this or that we're doing. We get their ideas, opinions. They really help us shape the direction of the company, where we're going. We do that for about an hour and a half, and then we take them out to lunch and and get to know everybody better. So we just had that this week, and that was kind of a cool thing. How are things for you, Tucker? Good. Busy, busy. Today was a busy day out in the field. I actually this morning went and looked at a certain property that will remain nameless. It looks like it might be a good acquisition for us. And then uh, I was actually off to Northwest Portland to look at another potential. We we did a project back in Northwest a while ago on Northwest Raleigh, right above Chapman, that elementary school right there. And it was a surprising area to us how much it sold for and how quickly. And so I went and looked at another opportunity there. I don't know that we're going to do it, but you know, it seems like there's a lot going on up there, that's for sure. So it's kind of cool to see the infill, as, as we'll probably talk about a lot in our interview, kind of the infill construction that's going on in the different parts of the city and, and how it varies from place to place. But, you know, beyond that, we are uh, going to be breaking ground here next week on a townhome project, finally, in first edition. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, we're about a week away from completing our project over in Lake Grove that's uh, close to completion. But I will say that we had one listed in our office here this week. And it kind of is a testament to what you were talking about. The market's still bananas. We had one listed. It listed at 389 and it didn't get any offers in the first couple of days. We listed Friday, but by Monday, there was like four offers in hand. It had bid up to like 25 k over, and it ended up uh, somebody accepted an offer. It wasn't a property that I renovated. It was one that we sold to another investor, and then they sold it after they renovated it. But it was a cash buyer at 20 plus thousand over list that ended up getting the winning bid on it. And so it is listing by listing that's for sure. But man, it's still pretty hot out there. I can tell you that. Yeah. That's wonderful for that individual to get that great, great offer with cash. That's yeah, awesome. So if you've got a clean turnkey house in inner Southeast, inner Northeast, I guess that would what they would call an easy listing, right, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. As we'll go into in our interview now. Yeah. So other than that, you know, we're just plugging and chugging. Things are good. Market's good. And we're excited to uh, start finishing off some projects and, and putting them on the market. But with that being said, we've got a great interview ahead for us here. All right, guys, we are going to transition into our interview section for this week's show. And we got another fantastic interview for you guys. We were fortunate enough to get this individual lined up on kind of short notice. So we very much appreciate her time. But uh, without further ado, Steve, why don't you give our guest a fantastic introduction? Yeah, thanks, Tucker. So we have with us Rhett Pratt with Lawyer's Title. She is, well, let's let her tell us. What's your actual title there, Rhett? Well, I guess it's the uh, manager of the Land Development and Builder Department at Lawyer's Title. 
Fantastic. Thank you. And I'm actually working currently with Rhett on a pretty big project we have going. We listed a piece of land in Hillsborough that needs to be annexed into the city, but it is developable and we do have it on the market. We're working with a particular builder that looks like hopeful that we can put something together. And, and Rhett was very instrumental in getting us a developer's packet, helping us go through the developer's packet, educating us on what we're looking at, answering lots of questions. She talked to several builders on our behalf. She is just all things land and development and builders. And unlike, of course, you, Tucker, where you you know what you know, she talks and works with a lot of builders. So we're very fortunate to have her here on the show to be able to pick her brain and have her be our eyes and ears out there of what's going on. Yeah, she, so, gets, to, uh, she gets to deal with a, a whole bunch of people just like me, <laughs> whether that be <laughs> or bad. <laughs> so, Rhett, let's go right into some of these questions we have for you. Tell us about your position there at Lawyer's Title and your background working in real estate in general, title specifically, and then also with builders and developers. Okay. Well, I have been doing this work since 1979, and I work with mostly residential builders in the Tri-County area. So I've been doing this since 1979. I left the industry for a short time selling products to builders, windows and doors, lighting, appliances. Went over to Hawaii, opened up the Hawaiian market for someone I was working for. So I've got a wealth of experience with that. I had my real estate license for about a year and learned building and new construction from a lot of different angles. Wow. So when did you transition into the title side of things? I actually started in the title business in 79, and I've been working with builders the whole time. So I've never been in title or escrow. I've just been working with builders. Wow. Okay. Okay. Geesh. Right. You have enough experience to be on our show. Let's just, <laughs> let's just put that out there. So, well, let's go into it. How are builders in general doing today? Well, they're doing great if they have money or access to money. There's still very few institutional lenders that are giving construction loans and very, very few, if any, that are loaning money for acquisition and development. A lot of the private money that's available is pretty expensive. It's four to five points and about 12% on average. So it's more of a challenge to make a profit than it used to be. Yeah, that's interesting. I will attest to the fact that getting conventional money, so to speak, and as a builder is tough. We're fortunate now that uh, I've been romancing a local bank for a better part of uh, probably three or four years now. And they have just now started to kind of open the floodgates in terms of giving us financing capability. But it literally has taken four years of, you know, giving them deposit accounts, letting them see how the business works and basically getting comfortable not only with us, but with the real estate market again. So you're, you're very right there. And the alternative, of course, is raising private money. We've done a, a large amount of that over the years, but a lot of builders, you know, that's a big challenge for them to be able to do it at, a, at terms that are advantageous to actually doing a project, like you said. Yeah, it really is. Good for you. And and they want to see so much more of your information and your finances and your processes than they ever did. 
Yeah, which, you know, you can understand why, I suppose. I think the pendulum has swung pretty far one way, you know, or it did in terms of lending. It's still there, I think, with construction lending. And, uh, you know, that's obviously been a hang-up for a lot of builders. That and, of course, finding inventory, right? So you got money problems and you got inventory problems. That's the other side of it. Well, and you have labor problems, too. I work with a great builder in the Salem market, and it's just it's interesting to me how during this housing, I guess you we'd call it a boom, the margins they have just don't seem to be what they used they were 10 years ago and i think a big part of that is the labor costs there's just there seems to be shortage of labor and i was just talking to them the other day and, and those subcontractors they just kind of name their price i mean yeah. to some oh, extent yeah. i mean just recently to give you a, a real life example of that our cost per square foot to frame has gone up 3 bucks over the last year and give me some perspective i mean did we go from 10 to 13 or did we go from 30 to 33? We what? went from like 5 to 8, we'll call five it. To eight. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Or that's 50%. Yeah, almost. now we've got a great framer and that's why we appease him. But the reason why we're paying him that is because everybody and their mother is offering him more money and more money and more money. So it's happening in a lot of different trades, frames, yeah, being yeah. probably the, the most do you, prevalent. Do you think that's because so many laborers got out during the real estate holocaust, if you will, when there was just nothing to do and they went and did other stuff and – got out of the business or I think so I mean you know there's there's labor out there but you know when you're doing higher end stuff like we are you, you want quality labor that works fast and works good you can always get your craigslist labor but <laughs> you don't want yeah. craigslist labor when you're building multi-million dollar homes sure sure but and, I are, you no- <laughs> are you noticing this too Rhett oh big time big time and and the framing costs that you just mentioned I've heard the same thing it's the concrete guys it's Everybody. And when you talk about products, you know, you used to be able to order the windows for your house and get them within a very short time. And now you've got to really think ahead. You have to plan so much more ahead of time with all kinds of products than you ever used to have to. That's interesting. Yeah. It's funny you said windows because the downturn hurts so many companies. I mean, Geldwin, which is an Oregon based company, I actually sold a house for one of their family members. They were out of Klamath Falls, but they sold out during the downturn. They had such financial issues because nobody was buying windows. I mean, it was like few houses were being built and nobody was buying windows. And so they were a privately owned company. And I I believe she told me that they sold to a private equity firm or a hedge fund and kind of gave up their control. So it is interesting. I mean, and for them having done that, there's probably other window companies that went out of business. So just... The infrastructure to support what needs to happen on the building front isn't there because so much of it got decimated during that downturn. Yeah, it's true. Right. Hey, you guys were asking me what are the opportunities and the challenges that the builders are having, and and we're talking about that. Another opportunity that's happening right now is this inner city in the northeast, southeast, and even southwest areas. Uh, What we call infill building is really hot. Everybody is looking for lots and they're partitioning off extra side lots. And that's part of what we do is help people partition and develop their land. And that's a big deal. The fix and flip stuff is just really robust. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because that's our expertise. <laughs> that's kind of how we got started, Rhett. You know, obviously, we, we don't know each other too well other than this interview, and we're getting to know each other better as we go. But that's, uh, you know, we started in the fix and flip game pretty heavily in terms of volume. You know, we st- I started renovating properties back in 2002, 2003, but 2008, 
2008, end of 2008, beginning of 2009, right at the beginning of the crater, I guess, so to speak, in the real estate market is when we started doing quite a bit of volume on the rehab front or the fix and flip front. And then about 2010, we transitioned into new construction. And that's kind of where we've been now for the last number of years is that infill new construction that you just mentioned, which is a, it's a fantastic place to be, not without its challenges, like you mentioned, but a fantastic place to be. Absolutely. And you're, it changes all the time and each area is different. So the realtor has to know what he's doing. The builder has to know what he's doing. The lender needs to be made aware. It's just funny how each area is different. Yeah, it really is. And I just literally got an email right before we hopped on here from the city of Portland. And those crazy nut jobs down at the city just ramrodded through a new tree (laughs) cost thing that just went through that any tree over 36 inches that isn't considered hazard or dying is going to cost you $10,800. And every caliper inch above 36 inches is another $300. So if there's three trees on your lot, three fruit trees that you're trying to buy to build a house, it's going to cost you $32,000 at a minimum to take those trees out before you can start building your house. And on top of that, we have some of the highest building permit costs in the country. And so the geniuses down at City Hall figured that this was going to deter builders from building. Well, what's it going to do? All it's going to do is take money out of the homeowner's pockets who are selling these teardown properties to builders. It's not going to come out of the builder's pockets. So it's just insane. But it goes back to the point you're making, Rhett, in terms of different challenges in different areas. We focus mainly on Lake Oswego now because we think Portland has lost their damn mind. (laughs) They have their own tree issues, but this latest one on top of the hand demo thing that's getting pushed through and there's a new sidewalk thing. I mean, they're just making it really difficult. And, um, you know, Randy, who was on the show, Randy Sebastian, a couple weeks ago, you know, he uh, he put a nice spin on it. He says it's a, it's a challenge and he enjoys it, and I do believe him. But, you know, a lot of these challenges are, are new, and they are very challenging, that's for sure. Well, wow. it's changing quickly, too. That tree ordinance, it, you know, that's new, and you have to look at who's in office and how friendly they are to the housing industry. The whole teardown thing that Charlie Hales tried to instigate, where it was $25,000 to tear down a house. Yeah, you know, that would have stopped that business completely. There's oh, yeah. Enough costs that builders have to pay. Right. Well, now the, the back door to that is any house built before 1915, they want you to hand demo it. So, you know, they're not getting the 25K on the teardown tax, but they're getting you for additional labor costs and time to take down well, houses. Yeah. And then add to it that there's probably two companies in Portland that can do the teardown of the houses and take those products away. And there, I'm also hearing that there's really no market for those recycled products. So well, where are they going to put those? <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's bananas. We'll put it that way. <laughs> it, uh, is. it doesn't make much sense. No, I mean, I get where people are coming from, but there's no reality filter between where it comes from and putting it into, into action. And it just, it, yeah, it drives me crazy seeing the stuff. And the fact that it goes from idea to, you know, being the way that it is, usually some of those ideas fall off the track, sort of like the $25,000 teardown tax didn't garner the support that he was hoping. But, um, you know, this other stuff has, and it's just crazy. But it, do, it does make it challenging. On top of that, you obviously have a lot of NIMBYs here in Portland, which are not in my backyarders that don't like to see, whether it be development or anything else near them. So you have a lot of challenges in terms of dealing with other homeowners. So it's it, it's a challenging landscape, but you know, obviously the financial side of it's good and that's why people sustain through it and and continue to try and work on the infill part of this business. And to add to it all, Portland has a homeless crisis and here we are trying to build homes. I mean, come on people. (laughs) How does that figure in? Let's go 
to the next question here, Rhett. Would you say you agree with the statement that the national builders have a much more dominant role in building today in Portland than they did 10 years ago? And what percent of the market share would you guess that is? And and what is the reason for this? Well, they have a lot more money and they can buy up those big parcels. And a really big part of that, you guys, is that they can land bank that property. You know, it takes a long time to get property developed. And so the smaller local guys cannot afford any longer to buy property for an 80 or 100 lot subdivision because the time to hold that property and the cost of that money is just too huge. After going through the recession and losing a lot of what they had, now to have to pay top dollar for land and hold it for two or three years before you can get your project through, it's just the big guys are the only ones that can do it. Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, those smaller builders like myself, we don't have, uh, you know, two to three mil just sitting in our back pocket that we can go park for three years while we get development ready to go and all that. That's for sure. So you're right there. It's um, And I think that's why a lot of smaller builders like, you know, we talked about before have gravitated towards the infill because it's, you know, smaller projects, more manageable. You can turn your capital over quicker. So I think you're right. The bigger tracts of land, of there's really never been a bigger divide in terms of who's doing what. I think the bigger builders are kind of focusing on that. The smaller builders are kind of the, the special forces, as Randy called them, are jousting for the infill lots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, Randy Sebastian thought it was about 70% of the permits being pulled currently are national builders and the, the other 30% are local. Would you say that sounds about right? You know, Randy's a good friend of mine, so I don't want to disagree with him. And maybe he's looking, <laughs> maybe he's looking at different info than I am. But here at Lawyers Title, we subscribe to like Construction Monitor and New Home Trends, so we look at those figures all the time. And when I look at the Construction Monitor report, you know, in the last year's time, there has been twenty three hundred and forty four single family permits pulled. D.R. Horton's pulled 325. Polygon's pulled 183. Lennar's pulled 74. And then all the rest of them are all of our good old local boys. See, that's and, what I thought. Wow. You know, that's, I, that's almost flipped. So 30, 70, right? Well, that's how I see it when I look at the numbers here. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I, it feels that way out in the marketplace, you know, because obviously we're out there. I'm looking at property every day and, and paying attention to who's in the market. Now, obviously, you know, the bigger dogs are, are doing bigger projects at one place, which could make up, you know, they could have 10 permits that make up 10 infills. I mean, it's, you know, you, they can get a lot denser in terms of the number of permits in one particular project area. But, yeah, I kind of thought that that was my feeling, Rhett, from just, you know, being out in the in the trenches over the last year. Yeah, and the little guys can be much more flexible. When you see people like, well, I won't name names, but there was a very, very predominant home builder in Portland who had to switch what they were doing when the recession hit, and they were one of the first, not the first, but one of the first to switch to doing this infill building, and they had to retool their whole business, you know, their whole company to do 80 lot subdivisions all over the west side and then start to do onesie twosies on the east side takes a lot of 
switching up what you're doing really quickly. Oh yeah, and I, you know, without naming names, I I know their project manager pretty well. <laughs> and he's driving from 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. He puts you know 100 plus miles on his truck a day, and um, you know, it's you got to bounce around, and that goes to you know your point there. It's not you know an 80 lot subdivision. You've got 80 lots spread all over Portland. You know, the, and it's a lot more work. Yeah, it is, and that's what one of the Christmas parties I went to. We had a long conversation about that, but yeah, it it is. It really does take a lot more work, not only you know for everybody in the organization. Right. And Rhett, just to confirm, so Dr. Horton was the biggest builder in Portland. Is that correct? They are. And they they had was it three fifty? Three twenty six. And number two was Lennar. Polygon. Polygon. And how many did they have? One hundred eighty three. So they're about double the the next guy. Yeah. I have some. Yeah, I have some contacts at Dr. Horton. We may have to have them on an upcoming show. Let's go to the next question here, Rhett. How would you say builders' products today in general are different than the homes they've built in the past? Well, I think the green movement has really changed a lot of what they're doing. It puts more pressure on the product manufacturers to be more mindful of innovative products and creating products that people want. Portlanders, for sure, are much more interested in living spaces that utilize outdoor living, and that's expensive. So anytime a builder can afford to incorporate larger sliding doors, outdoor fireplaces, you know, those covered areas that us Oregonians love with the TVs and maybe a little kitchen area or a barbecue, those are a huge seller. But like I say, they're expensive. So Mm -hmm. that's one thing that I personally have seen that I love, that our builders are doing a really good job of trying to respond to what Portland wants. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. We actually do that in all of our homes. <laughs> but, uh, we utilize a lot of La Cantina type doors, you know, that open up indoor living space to outdoor and then obviously utilized uh, covered outdoor living because it rains nine months out of the year. So if you have to go outside, you know, it's nice to have covered, that's for sure. And then having a nice little kitchenette on the outside there with your barbecue and maybe you got a fridge and a sink, something like that. But yeah, those those things definitely add a lot to the homes. And, and I think uh, a lot of builders have responded to the market and providing those in their product these days. I do too. Would you say, guys, and this is to both of you, that the homes, I mean, that, beyond that amenity, because I think that is a, a fantastic an amenity, but would you say other components and parts of the homes are a little bit less expensive and a little bit more, I mean, because we were in the high-flying money is everywhere to be borrowed frenzy back then. And so, you know, there was a lot of extravagance in homes. And I'm not talking about the high end. I'm talking about the average home prices. Are amenities a little bit more modest these days, or do you think we're pretty close? Go ahead, Rhett. Okay, I will answer that in this way. I think if a builder is really trying, you know, we talk about land is costing more, lots are getting smaller. You have to really be strategic with where you put the pop and the bang in a house. And I think the products in the kitchen are a really good place to do that. And I do see, I mean, you see a lot more granite. You see stainless steel appliances. Lighting is something I used to sell. And I think dimmers and creating a a good environment in a few areas allows a builder to maybe cut back a little bit. Maybe that's not the right term, but, you know, you got to choose very strategically what you're going to do and where. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that it's it's about where you're spending the money, right? And you're trying to get the most you know, sizzle for your buck, essentially. Where are you going to spend it that people are going to notice? Because you can do things like putting in a nicer pad under your carpet, right? feels great, but is that going to help sell the house more than maybe utilizing chrome cantrims as opposed to white, right? Something like that, that they can see it looks nicer. It's got a better feel overall. So, and that's really the technical side of design. And that's, that's where a lot of builders struggle is because you're kind of trying to merge design and budget at the same time. But uh, I, I think you're right. It's, it's about spending it where people notice the most and um, not spending it so much in other areas. And it's really important. Yeah, I agree completely. Probably one of the most important things, <laughs> I would say, because they are contradictory. I mean, one is, I mean, I think if we all sat here and got together and said, we're going to build the nicest house imaginable with no constraints on budget. It would be an amazing house. But where the challenge comes in is how do you build a nice house as inexpensively as possible? That's the secret sauce that makes great builders. Let's go on to the next question here, Rhett. How does today's market remind you of the last housing boom in the mid-2000s, and how do you feel it's different? Well, I think I can talk mostly about how it's different and I think from a builder's perspective, it's very different with all those restrictions we were talking about, like the city of Portland and the difficulty of finding good lots to build on and the cost of money to buy the lots and the land. It's much more difficult. And there's also an unsurety about the future that I don't think we've had quite like this in the past. I get into so many conversations with people about what they think is going to happen in two years and three years and five years. And it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary going forward. You know, how, how long is this going to, and it affects people's decisions about how far, you know, when you were talking about the, sorry, I'm jumping around here. This is also exciting and interesting to me. No, go for it. Uh, when you talk about the Lenars and the DR Hortons and how they have this great holding power, this financial power, you know, I think the local guys, they don't have that luxury. And so I think this boom now, everybody is so excited because it feels so good and houses are selling like crazy. But at the same time, I think we're all still hurt from the recession. And I think the guys that are doing well are the ones that aren't letting that hold them back. But you also don't want to be the guy that was too extended and lost everything. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to describe it, Rhett. You know, for us personally, you know, we used to do a lot of stuff in Portland. And, you know, as our homeless problem began to get worse and as, you know, prices started to climb in certain neighborhoods and, uh, you know, I, Steve knows how I feel about North Portland, but we're not going to talk about any other areas in particular, but... <laughs> But, you know, obviously there's demand there, which is pushing upward and, and inventory is low. So there, there's upward pressure on prices. But, you know, we made a conscious decision two years ago, actually three years ago now, to start to exit the Portland market and move exclusively into Lake Oswego and Dunthorpe. And the reason being is, is like you mentioned, people are unsure about the future. I'm unsure about the future. And so 
I wanted to put our company in a position to be as insulated as we possibly can. All of the outside factors are as good as they possibly can be in a Lake Oswego area, as opposed to some parts of Portland where maybe the school's okay, there's a homeless problem, there's crime problem, but yet it's trendy and people want to be there. So I tried to position us in a place where we're as protected as we can be moving forward because as a builder, you're going to have yourself extended to some extent. You, you can't avoid that. You know, there is no way to build without risk uh, on many levels. And so that's been our plan. But I think you're right. I think there's a lot of people that are probably operating the same way. Yeah. And the way you're operating is going to cause you to have a lot less stress. You're not going to have to change and switch with the latest trend or the latest hot area. You know, that's a good, solid plan. Well, I appreciate that. Have- and he doesn't have to drive in all over tarnation and traffic. <laughs> yeah, and being that my wife does all our design work and we live in Lake Oswego, that, that helps my marriage too. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, and Randy Sebastian echoed that just to kind of you know reiterate some of the, the high points of his conversation. He said he's doing 10 homes a month and he's not going to be pushed into more. I mean, even if the opportunities and the money's there, he just won't do it. So that was a testimonial to exactly what you just said. Okay, so going on to the next question here, Rhett. If an agent out there has any needs with regards to building, development opportunity, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Or builders, for that matter. Well, you know, email and phone. I mean, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. But one thing I wanted to say with regard to that is that the earlier someone gets a hold of me, the better. If someone's looking for lots or land, even before the recession, I made that one of my biggest functions that I do is I help be a conduit between people that have lots and land and people that are looking for lots and land. You know, he who has the land wins, right? Yeah. Uh, One other thing I wanted to say with regard to any of the realtors that are out there listening to us today, if they have a listing coming up on a lot or a piece of land, they should contact me because I can get them directly in touch with the builders that are looking for the lots and land. And it helps strengthen everyone's business to do that. Give us kind of a synopsis. I don't know if we actually did this, right? I mean, what's your average day look like with agents calling you? Is it pretty similar to what I explained? I had a listing that was a developable piece of property. I called you. You got a developer's packet. You, you helped me through that. That's on the agent side. Like, what's your average builder calling you for and, and getting your help with? Well, I get calls for so many different things. It's crazy. But one thing that they call me about a lot is if they've got a project coming up and say they're going to sell the lots, that's where I can help them a lot. I can work with their realtor. I can give them a list of builders that are building in a specific area. I have a project right now out in Gresham and my, my developer does not build. So he connected me with his realtor and the realtor has consulted me for pricing, builders that build in the area, price per square foot, what's selling most, what's selling best, what's selling quickest, who those builders are. And that's just one thing. I mean, there's the developers want to know who paid what for the land. I have realtors call me all the time to help them figure out how to price their lots and land. You know what? I'm going to dub you the building messiah, Rhett. (laughs) That should be your job title. <laughs> That's because I'm so old. I've done it forever. That's not what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. 
Well, I think that's a pretty good explanation. I mean, literally, it's just a little bit of everything, depending on what's needed, is what it sounds like. And and you've got you know so much experience and different facets of building that you can just be a wealth of information for people. It sounds like that that is it keeps me so busy because I switched title companies a couple years ago, and when that happened, I came upon this company with this sales team that is something I had not experienced before. And they are much more involved. And so I have so many people coming at me with so many questions and needs. I can help them sell their little development properties. I can help them price it. I can talk to them from so many different angles. It's, it's, it's really revived me in my career, and I, I love it. Yeah, that's great. You're a fantastic resource. That's, there's really nothing more to say. Yeah, anything anything land or building or development, Rhett is just the person to go to. So thank you so much for joining us on our show, Rhett. It was just wonderful to chat with you. Tucker, do you have any final questions for her? No, I think that we covered a lot of great ground. I just, you know, personally want to thank you as well. I, I think that this was a great interview. And, you know, I think we, we talked about a lot of things that, that people are going to really enjoy. Thank you guys for the opportunity. It was very enjoyable for me too. Perfect. Well, hey, this is uh, episode 34, guys. We're going to be signing off. Steve, any last words for our listeners before we do? Thanks for listening and thanks for having being on the show, Rhett. Okay, bye-bye. All right, guys. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.